I'm Michael. I am a compulsive overeater. And uh, I thank God for my, uh, my abstinence and sobriety. And uh, I want to thank Don for asking me to come and speak tonight, uh, today, this morning rather. And uh, I love Overeaters Anonymous. I really do. You're going to hear a lot of gratitude from me. Um, I never really think about what I'm going to say when I come and speak at a 12-step meeting because I think it's better just to let it come from the heart. Um, but I've just been, I've been in over, somebody asked me this morning how long I've been in Overeaters Anonymous. And I came in, my first ever OA meeting was January 2008. And then the next question was, how did you, how did you find your way into Overeaters Anonymous? And I was being a bit, bit sarcastic and I said, on my knees. But actually, it's pretty, pretty true. It was really on my knees. It was never, you know, when I was talking to my uh, teachers at school, it was never, uh, I want to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or be in a 12-step program. That wasn't in the master plan for my life. I had a lot more, uh, lot more hopes and aspirations than that. But I'm actually really, really glad that I uh, found my way into Overeaters Anonymous. And, and I'm not ashamed of being in, in a 12-step program. And I do tell people who ask me, I don't publicize it, but if people come to me outside and ask me about it, I do... I do tell them. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about how I did find my way into these rooms. Um, you know, I, uh, I've had a problem with my thinking from as long as I can remember. And I've had a problem fitting into this world for as long as I can remember. And uh, I don't really think very normally. I don't have normal thinking. I don't react very well to the world around me and people, places and things. You know, uh, by nature, I'm a kind of nervous, anxious person and I always see the worst in things, right? I can never see the best in things. The glass is always half empty and my mind by default will go to the problem. And it kind of comforts me that, you know, it's kind of like a dark comforting that I will always go to the problem. But it serves me, it does not serve me in any way at all. It makes, it makes things even worse. And uh, I've always found food to be a real comforter for me. And food really changes the way I feel about things. It makes me feel better. And it comforts me. And there's no complications around food. And I don't need to make much of an effort around food. I just go and buy it. I stuff my face. I feel better for about 10 minutes. And then half an hour later, I feel terrible. So what I need to do is I need to go back and, and feed, my, uh, feed this pain that I'm in. So from a very early age, you know, you probably heard all this before, but I grew up in an alcoholic home. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of chaos, a lot of pain, a lot of insecurity, a lot of fear growing up. And, uh, you know, I remember from a really early age growing up in England, um, you know, food was always my go-to from a very, very early age. Chocolate particularly, right? Chocolate was just like my alcohol, like my heroin. It was just something that I just looked forward to. And I remember at school, going to school, you know, infant school back in England, and I hated going, right? And I would like cling on to my mother, and I'd hate going there. And they had this big circle of kids, 
and I didn't want to sit in that circle, right? I wanted to sit outside the circle, the seat away from them. And I didn't like the other kids. I always found something about them that was irritating, right? And I did not like being told what to do, right? I could not stand the teacher. And what made it worse? They were Catholic nuns and I couldn't stand them, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a, a, a recovering Catholic, by the way. Okay. And, uh, and, and they were nasty to me, right? They were brutal, right? And I had this fierce resentment to them, which carried on all the way through my life. And, uh, but the only thing I loved about being at this infant school, kindergarten as you call it in America, was at break we used to get these little bottles of milk and these chocolate cookies. And I loved it. That's what I used to wait for, right? And I would steal the other kids' chocolate cookies, right? I'd put them in my pocket. I'd have all this, like, chocolate down the side of my shorts. And uh, I remember... I couldn't wait for the end of the day, it was like 12, 30, 1 o'clock, and I, I just loved going home. And I would eat these Cadbury cream eggs, you actually sell them in America, Hope not tempting anybody here, but this is my story. These Cadbury cream eggs. And these Cadbury cream eggs were like a fix to me, and it just made me feel better. And it got me through the day because I'd be like, couldn't wait to get home. Milk, Cadbury's cream eggs, TV, and I'm treated, right? But this kind of carried on all the way through my life. And of course, as I eat lots of bad food and, you know, don't exercise, I get bigger and bigger and bigger. So as a kid, my weight was always up and down, up and down. But here was what was real, a real problem for me. I was really good at sport. You know, I was good at soccer and rugby. That's the kind of sports we play in England. And when I was thin and working out, because in my teens I would jump around, I didn't know I had exercise bulimia, which I didn't, and I started throwing up as well. You know, I'd be, you know, a few months I'd be super fit, working out all the time, you know, doing really well at sports, and then my mind would take over and i need to go back to my food and I would get overweight and then I wouldn't be very good at sport. And it was always this jumping up and down. And my sister is also a compulsive overeater bulimic, and we would spend time together brother and sister choosing diets I mean that's not a very healthy family relationship right I mean it was kind of I laugh at it now but my family were crazy right you had me and my sister constantly throwing up doing diets and then the father was an alcoholic the brother an alcoholic and another sister untreated Al-Anon so can you imagine the chaos in this home right I mean poor mother she was the only normal one right but that's the way it was so this carried on all the way through, up and down, you know, bulimia kicked in, compulsive overeating, and, you know, I got up to, you know, over 300 pounds, down to 180 pounds, down to 160 pounds, anorexia kicked in. So I've never had a normal relationship with food, and the misery that that brings. And then the geographic moved to America, and I thought that would solve all my problems coming to America. Right, everything would be solved because America's the land of dreams, right? And of course, what well, I'm surrounded 360 degrees by the best food in the world, right? Okay, the best food in the world, and I found, I found, you know, Mexican food, pizza, oh, it was just, and so here I'm living down in Torrance in a really loveless marriage, and on my own, and all I did all day long was eat. I could not stop eating. And I just ballooned up 
the marriage fell apart. It's very difficult to keep a marriage or be intimate when you're over 300 pounds. And I went home and back here and home and I was lost and I was miserable and I was suicidal. And I just remember the bottom for me was around Christmas time 2007 and an alcoholic as well, binge drinker. And I just could not stop eating. And I knew there was something wrong with me, you know. And uh, I googled, I'd been to an AA meeting and liked it, but there was all the donuts and I thought, no, I need to find a food thing. And I just typed in eating disorders into Google. This is how I find, found my way to Overeaters Anonymous. And it came up with Overeaters Anonymous. And I called this guy, um, I was living out in Pasadena, and I called this guy who was on a, a list, a, a meeting list on the site, and there was a men's stag uh, out in um, Glendora. And I went out to this men's stag, and this was my first OA meeting. You know, I walked into this old rickety clubhouse out in Glendora, and uh, there was a guy sit lying in the middle of the room uh, 10 minutes before the OA meeting was starting. Nobody else, just this guy lying in the middle of the room. Can you imagine a newcomer that's never been to an OA meeting? Can you remember how terrified you were of going to a meeting, right? And so here he was and lying in the middle of the room and I walked in and there was these prayers and steps on the wall and pictures of old men from the 1930s and easy does it, all these things I had no clue what they meant. And he sat up, he looked at me and he said, do you believe in God? <laughs> and uh, I went, yeah. And he said, you're in the right place and laid back down again. Now, I was in such pain and desperation that I stayed, right? I sat down and I stayed. And then two other guys came in and this, this guy, who was, I got to know afterwards, who was a, a real sweet guy but very mentally ill, uh, we sat down, the four of us, and we had a meeting. And the beauty of this was that at the end of that meeting, I felt better. I felt better. And there was a little glimmer of hope that this could actually help me. Because being a compulsive overeater, having an eating disorder of a very severe way brings you to such a dark place. And I try and explain this to my fellows in Alcoholics Anonymous. They don't get it. That having this eating disorder, it takes me to such a dark place. When you scoop in vomit, out of the side of your car. When you go into a drive-through and you eat yourself so hard that you can't, you, you, you feel in pain and you vow that you will never do that again and within an hour you're back at another drive-through. When you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're on your own all the time and you go to the trash downstairs and pull out that cold pizza that you threw away the night before and you eat it. That is the place that this disease takes me to. And it's, it, it's suffering of a kind that only you people understand. And that constant not being able to look in the mirror because I'm so obese and I'm just so ashamed about the way I look that when I buy a pair of pants within a month that the inside of the pants have worn away because my legs rub together. Where I can't wash properly 
where I can't sit in an airplane because I can't get the seat around and I feel so ashamed to ask the flight attendant for a belt extension. That was where I was at and I've got the pictures to prove it. And today, by the grace of God, by the grace of God and this program of Overeaters Anonymous, I'm fit, I'm healthy, I'm lean and I'm happy and I'm joyous and I'm free. Food is not my slave today. It is not my slave. I have to be really, really careful. But it's not my slave today. I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. My career has taken off. I've got friends in this program who I call deep, deep friends like Nick Walton. I haven't seen him for a few weeks. Friends like Nick and other people I've met in AA and OA. And I have a peace and a purpose in my life today that I would, did never think would happen for me. I've lost all hope. And eight years on, moving forward, eight years, it's all been down to this program of recovery, this program of Overeaters Anonymous. And from the love and the help that's been shown to me and given to me so freely from people who've helped me and having a sponsor that I can call every single day and talk to them about this problem with food. And so like, for example, last night, and I want to talk about how I practically apply this program into my, my daily life. So last night I, uh, I work in sales and I have to take people out for dinner and events all the time. It's a dream job for a normal person, but for a compulsive overeater, it's, not, it's really challenging. And you know, last night, box seats at the, the Staples Center and taking these clients and all they do is eat and drink. And I have to go there and I'm anxious driving down the tent. And I'm thinking, God, all that food's going to be there. You know, this is going to be tough. And a part of me wants to say, look, I'm all, I've got it. I'm alright. I'm normal. I can handle it. No, that's not the case. I need to apply the tools in the program right in that moment that I'm in. So the first thing I do is I call my sponsor. And I talk to him about it. He's got 39 years of abstinence. Right? So I talk to him about it. He said, look, what I want you to do, I want you to leave the box, say a prayer, and I want you to commit to me now what you're going to eat. I said, well, I'm not going to eat any bread. Certainly not going to eat any sugar. I'm going to stick to chicken and beef. And hummus. I like hummus, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I prayed. I went in there. I was very charming. I did all the, the business stuff. And while I was talking to people, or while I was listening to people, I'm praying in my head, can you keep me safe from the food? Can you protect me? Can you watch over me? Because I don't want to fall back into that place. And the miracle is that I ate abstinently. I had a good time. And I left. And I can wake up this morning and come to a meeting of Overeaters Anonymous and look you in the eye and tell you I'm abstinent, I'm sober, and I'm working this program. And that is a miracle. And that is what I've learned in these rooms of, of Overeaters Anonymous. But it wasn't always that way. And... Trust me, I, you know, there are people in OA where this happens, but not, it hasn't happened for me where the, the compulsion to overeat has been completely lifted. It hasn't for me. Alcohol? Absolutely. Food? No. I have to be diligent every day. And some people ask me, God, how do you do that every day? How do you send your food in every single day to sponsor everything? Time, what I've eaten, everything, every day to him. And I said, actually, it's quite easy. It's part of my life. 
It's quite easy. It's really hard getting to 150 pounds overweight. Takes a lot of planning. <laughs> takes a lot of effort to completely sabotage your life. It takes a lot of effort. And so I pray every day. I get on my knees as soon as I get up in the morning. I carry my little big book everywhere. My pocket big book everywhere. And there's plenty of prayers in here. And the one thing that I carry with me that really protects me when I'm in a restaurant is the St. Francis prayer. And it stays in my back pocket. And when I have these tools around me, when I've got that loving, living God in my life with me at my side, when I'm looking at a menu or I'm surrounded by food or surrounded by people, because that really triggers me with food. I have a real real problem connecting with people as a compulsive overeater. When I bring all these things into my life, it just gets easy. And the bumps in the road come out. And slowly, one day at a time, it turns into a month and a year. And eight years later, here I am. Eight years later. It's incredible. It really is. But, you know, I have to stay right in the middle of this. There's no sitting on the periphery. You know, I'm very, very active in Overeaters Anonymous. My home group, Light a Candle. I'm the secretary there. I sponsor men and women. Compulsive overeaters, anorexics and bulimics. I speak at meetings. I call my sponsor every day. I write down my food every day. I send it to him. I'm honest about what I'm eating. I have to get right in the middle of this. And one of the things that's been happening to me a little bit lately is that my connection with God and my prayer with God has gone a little bit stale. It's become very mechanical, the serenity prayer, the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, the St. Francis prayer. And I'm saying it just to get it through. I wake up in the morning, like I do my prayers and then off I go. And I'm forgetting to take God with me. And I'm noticing there's a little bit more anxiety coming into my day and a little bit more irritation. And a little bit, a few more problems are coming my way. Even though I'm doing all the other things to keep me abstinent, but to keep me spiritually fit, that deep depth of spirituality, I really need to up my game a little bit on that. I was thinking that this morning and change the prayers around a little bit. And the other thing that I was talking to my sponsor about is that the only way I can keep abstinent is by helping others. And I find it really challenging sponsoring some people in OA. Because I don't understand why they won't jump at this and go for it with everything. And so that's difficult for me sometimes when I'm ask, you know, giving people suggestions when I'm sponsoring them and they're not taking those suggestions. I have, that, I have a real struggle with that. Sponsoring alcoholics is different. I don't understand it. And I say, look, this is what's happened to me. But my sponsor, and when I pray about it, said, look, all you have to do is just be kind and loving and put your hand out and the results is not down to you, it's down to God and, their, and them and take a step back. But I have to keep putting my hand out, I have to keep helping you, I have to keep doing service commitments. Because that is the way I find that my food gets really, really clean when I'm doing that. And I don't want to go back to the way I was. And I know this is being recorded, but I, didn't, I, I was thinking about this. I do want to share one thing with you that I don't share very often at meetings. As, um, but I'm going to share it today because I think it's important is um, when I lost all the weight, I lost about 120 pounds or whatever it was. I had a lot of hanging skin, loose skin. And when I took my clothes off, I still was like, God, you know, I still felt, you know, I, I still felt ashamed about my body. And I had all the skin removed. 
and I had about eight pounds of skin removed from me. And it was the most painful experience. This big scar all the way around me. And it took me about three or four months to even be able to walk upright. And I think back to that experience because that's where this disease took me. And you know the miracle today, and there's only one person who's allowed to see this scar, that's my fiance, right? Today that scar's disappeared. And people come up to me when I tell them I used to weigh 300 and they go, How? You, don't, you don't even look like you were there. And that's the miracle that God's given me. That I can transform my body, but I can transform my mind. And I can transform my life. And that has happened to me. And it's a miracle. And I share that with you because if you're struggling, there's an answer. There's hope. There's a solution. But it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. And I'll finish on this. I want to. I read the big book every day. I, I, you know, I love the big book. And there's a part in the big book. It's not in the pocketbook, but I wrote this particular step out, and it talks about. It's from the keys of the kingdom, and it's the, my favourite story in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this really talks about the promises in the twelfth step. And for if you boil down my disease, the food is just really the medicine. But if I boil down the disease, the disease for me is I've never really felt that I've fitted into this world. And I've never really felt that I've had a purpose. I've really never felt, you know, a part of. And I've always been desperately searching, moving countries, trying different religions, different jobs, different relationships. There's been constant change, desperately searching for that happiness. And when I came into Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, I found exactly what I was looking for. And that story I told you about the guy that was lying on the floor, something kept me in that room that day. Because I was ready to run out the door. But something kept me in that room. And I believe that's a power greater than myself. And it says here in the keys of the kingdom, and this, happened, this has happened to me and it happens to me every day. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. And we all need that. We all need to feel a sense of being wanted, needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, we have been given the keys of the kingdom. And I really feel this, that the kingdom of God lies within me. And every day I experience the kingdom of God. And especially when I'm in a 12-step meeting. And today especially I woke up and I just feel good. I feel happy, joyous and free. Abstinent breakfast. I'm going to spend the rest of the day with my fiancé. Then I'll go to my home group. And it will be a good day. One day at a time. So thanks for letting me share. This is time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need to not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. All right, seems like questions. Who's got a question? This is my photos, by the way, so I'll pass these around. I don't want to drop that. Go ahead. You said you were a recovering Catholic. How has your view of God 
or of your higher power changed in the eight years that you've been in? Do I repeat the question? So, uh, I was kind of joking about being a recovering Catholic. Uh, And the question is, um, how has my conception of God changed since I came into the program of Overeaters Anonymous? Yeah, it's a great question. It's changed uh, 180 degrees. My, uh, I always believed in God. I just never thought God believed in me. And um, I I had this... uh, I had this um, opinion or impression that God was a, an all damn, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, judgmental God, um, that all the things that I'd done wrong in the past, uh, I was going to be standing tall in front of the, this all powerful uh, being, you know, when I die and, uh, you know, I was being punished now for, for whatever sins I've done now in this life and, uh, you know, I just, I didn't see it as a loving God, I didn't have any personal friendship or connection or, or conscious contact with a, that God and then my first sponsor Walter G uh, in this program you know really uh, really taught me about developing a, a, day, a relationship a loving relationship with a loving living God in my life today and uh, my AA sponsor Dan F who passed away at the end of last year he really helped me a lot as well with it and um, they would tell me to, uh, to set my alarm on my watch every 15 minutes and when it goes off just to check in with God and say hey God I'm just checking in with you now moving things around today I want you to be with me to guide me to protect me and watch over me and help me be kind and loving to people even if they don't deserve it and that was my prayer right and that's my prayer today help me be kind and loving to people even when they don't deserve it and uh I would carry my St. Francis prayer and I've carried the, I remember Walter telling me to get a pocket book and I've carried this with me everywhere in the last eight years in my St. Francis prayer and I check in regularly. I've stopped doing that as much lately and I need to get back to the basics of it. But slowly this, this God appeared in my life and it was my friend, the best friend I'd ever had and he forgave me for all my uh, past conduct as long as I reach out and help his kids. And uh, that's the God I've got today. So it's changed from a, a, a judgmental God to an all-loving God, my best friend who's with me all the time. And then the other thing that I do do, um, and when I do this I have a great day, and you may find this a bit strange, but I open the car door and tell God to get in with me before I drive off. And, uh, you know, he's sitting beside me. And, um, you know, there's been times where I've really been uh, struggling and, uh, you know, I pulled the car over at the side of the freeway and I've got on one knee on the side of the freeway. Hey, God, I need you now. Can you just help me? Can you just be with me? Can you show me what to do next? And uh, when I do that and I really put all my efforts and conscious efforts into that, boy, the day gets really good and the fear disappears. Hope that helps. Go ahead.
So what do you do when you have that kind of a thought? And I can just compartmentalize that one thing, that we can kneel, and I'll continue on. Right. So I think the question is, uh, you know, compartmentalize a decision around your food that could lead back to a break in abstinence, right? Yeah? So, uh, the disease is cunning, baffling, and more powerful than you. And we have an ego where when things start getting a little bit better, it's like, I'm not sure I need to do all of these things, and I have this as well. I have a big ego, right? And I haven't met anybody in a 12-step program that doesn't have an infantile ego. And I have this infantile ego. But you know, what really brings me back to that place of where I need to really be very, very conscious about my decisions around food is the pain that I used to be in, right? And I look at those photographs, and pain is the touchstone. It's the cornerstone for me. I don't want to go back to that place. And have I made decisions around food? Can I just have that? Can I just have that? Of course. But there is something deep within me that reminds me of where I was, and it's just one bite away. It's like an alcoholic, one drink. For me, it's one chocolate bar. Because I have a physical allergy coupled with a mental obsession, and I need to remember that as well. There's something happens to me when I take sugar into my body. So I think the answer to your question is, you know, how much do you want to be abstinent? How much do you want to be happy, joyous, and free? And that's the question you have to ask yourself with your sponsor and with God. And ask God for the willingness and the strength to continue one day at a time working this program. There's no, there's no cheat days in Overeaters Anonymous. <laughs> there's no cheat days. Nick! Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Nick asked me, you know, my sister is a compulsive overeater, bulimic, and uh, what's my relationship with her today? I wish I could tell you, Nick, it was a great relationship. And uh, I'm a loving, kind brother, and we have a very close relationship. We don't. Uh, she's in the disease. She's an alcoholic. Uh, for the last 20 years, in and out, in and out, uh, rehabs. Uh, it's a really sad story. And uh, I don't work in Al Anon program. But I, I had to detach myself from it, Nick. And I've got a brother as well who's in and out of AA. And uh, I can't be around it. I can't be around it. And uh, I pray for them. But I, uh, you know, I have to detach from it and let God find, you know, find, let her find her own way with her loving, loving God. And I pray she's okay, but I can't deal with that. It's too painful. Go ahead. Thank you. Um Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Were there any steps particularly challenging and how did I work through that? Uh, yeah. The full step wasn't a big problem for me, right? Because I trusted my sponsor. And so I just, I, I, I followed his direction. I wrote it all down, didn't leave anything out. The fifth step was draining. You know, telling him it spent a whole day, 20, you know, like from 10 in the morning till 6 at night, just reading the entire fourth step to him. And that was that was draining, but I got it all out of the way. The the one step that I find very ch that I found very challenging was the ninth step, because I was in a lot of fear about facing those that I'd wronged, and I done caused a lot of damage. 
and I had to get on a plane and go back to England and make those amends in person and one of those amends I made was to a cousin who I'd stolen money from and got on a plane and came to America and thought oh I'm going to see that guy again uh, you know several thousand dollars and it's okay you know you know he's got plenty of money anyway you know I need this more than him right and obviously when I'm in a program of recovery I need to make amends or I can't keep what I've got so I went back and I had the money I got all the money out of the bank there's several thousand dollars pounds that we have in Britain and uh, I remember praying and asking God to be with me and talking to my sponsor about it and I called my cousin and his wife picked up she was very cold and went oh right I said look I'm back in the UK I'd like to come and see you and at first she was like no, I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, would you just give me five minutes of your time? So I went, I knocked on the door and he opened the door. My cousin was really kind and loving about it and she was not. And uh, I went in and I explained to them, I'm in a program of recovery uh, for Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I stole this money from you and part of that means I'd like to give you this money back. And uh, it's very important for me. If you don't want to keep the money, do whatever you want with it. But I, I need to leave this money with you. And we had a wonderful day together. It was a wonderful 12-step experience. And I remember getting in the car and he waved to me and it it was just beautiful. Six months later he died. And so, if I hadn't done that, that would have stayed with me. And so, if you're worried about getting in front of people, just pray and ask God to be with you and you'll find the strength to carry out those amends to you. And it was a beautiful experience and then the amends to my mother as well and uh, you know I, I tried to make amends to my brother and sister following up on Nick's question that didn't go so well there was only one person who didn't take my amends and I was really upset by it it was somebody in program that was the only person so you know and I pray for that person but no resentment towards him today so that was the only step and it changed everything the food got even cleaner after the nine step but 10, 11, and 12 that I have to do every day takes a lot of discipline as well. So, good question. Thanks. Go ahead, Don. What do you do when you get the urges for food today? How do you deal with them in real time? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, uh, how do I deal with the urges of the, when the food calls me today? Um, I live a very disciplined life, right? It, 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 my my fiancé laughs at me. I'm going to be honest, I go to bed at the same time every night. I get up at 5 o'clock every day. I work out at the same time every morning. I go to five meetings a week. I do five service commitments and I try and help five people each week. Five different people and I work out five times. Magic five, I call it, right? That's the way I live my life today. When I live like that, the urges go away. Right? When I'm disciplined and structured. But when I'm traveling or I'm in a situation, what I have to do is I have to pull away from it and I have to get to that power greater than myself, Don. And I have to ask for his help and I have to reach out to my, my sponsor when, I'm, when the food is calling me. And, um, you know, typically I need to look at the days leading up to when the food is calling me because something's happened. Uh, so it could have been an argument at work that wasn't resolved. It could have been uh, me shouting at somebody on the freeway. You know, it could have been me being pretty selfish towards my fiance and wanting my own way. There's something I've done along the way leading up to that food calling me that I need to change and make amends for and ask God for the help and the direction for some corrective measures. 
as it says in the big book. So that's typically what I do and I use the phone a lot. And then if I do eat something that's not quite right, I don't tear myself apart about it. I write it down, I'm honest about it, I pray about it and I move forward and I remember that experience for the next time. Go ahead. Five minutes left. Is the one thing that I can impart with you that will help the most get to a place of being happy, joyous and free? Helping others. Helping others. It says it all the way through the big book. You cannot keep this unless you're helping others. Even when you don't want to. And people call me at times where I'm sitting watching the TV and I don't want to get up from my direct TV and I've got to take the call. And I have to do it. And then something magical happens afterwards. But I have to be really careful that I don't help you because I want something back. And my, my alcoholic mind can spin it that way. Okay, what are you going to do for me? Or when I help a sponsee, how come you're not grateful enough? Right? You should be thanking me more. Right? Took your birthday cake, didn't even mention me. Right? You know? Because the ego doesn't like that as well. So, a long-winded answer, helping back. It's the only way you can keep it. There's plenty of people to help. Go, go ahead. Thanks, um, thanks for your share, Michael. Um, you talked about living a life beyond your wildest dreams, sort of piggybacking on the last um, question. I have, some, you know, I have my own personal stuff around that, but I'm just wondering, when you say that, did you have certain wild dreams and you achieved them and beyond, or did your what, what you thought was in your wildest dream, did it change? So you now have something different than you even had. Yeah, you that's a great that. question. So it's like, I talked about living a life beyond my wildest dreams. Were there any dreams that I wanted to have that uh, possibly did or didn't materialize? Well, the life I've got today, uh, I'll quickly, I know we've got a few minutes left, but the, after that meeting at Glendora, one of the guys in there said, there's a good meeting over in Brentwood on the west side of LA. A lot of young people there, there's an Irish guy there, you're, you're going to fit in really well there. So I remember driving, I didn't know LA that well at the time, I didn't know the west side very well. And I drove over to Brentwood and I parked up outside the church on San Vincente and there's people jogging up and down, right? Beautiful blue skies, everybody's good looking in Brentwood, aren't they, right? Makes you sick, right? And uh, I remember just sitting there, big obese, 330 pounds guy, miserable. And I'm just sitting there and I've seen all these really good looking men and women running up and down. I thought, God, it'd be great to be able to run up and down some and say, God, this is a beautiful area. I'd love to live here. And uh, God, I wish I had a great career. You know, it's never going to happen for me. You know, and my dreams for me were always about, I wanted to play for Manchester United, right? <laughs> or I wanted to be a, an actor and have two Victoria's Secret models on either side of my arm walking down the red carpet, right? This is the infantile ego. But when I was in that moment and thinking what I'd really like is a bit of peace and a good career and I'd love to have a really good, good real nice girlfriend. I just want a girlfriend, right? You know, I haven't had a, been in a relationship for 10 years. I want to be fit and healthy. Eight years later, I live around the corner from that church. 
I run up and down San Vincente every day. I have a beautiful fiancé that I met in Overeaters Anonymous. And I was sitting outside that church this morning because I'm a secretary of a meeting there at 7.30. I had to go and set up before I came here. And I sat outside the church and thought, I remember that day. And God has given me everything that I've wanted and more. He just wants me to give back and just live a good life. That's what he wants me to do, to do. And for me, the whole spirituality 12-step thing is it's the way that I live my life today. It's the way I live my life today. And I fall desperately short, but I'm striving to be the man that he wants me to be. And when I'm like that, the food is clean. That's, I hope that helps. Is that it? <laughs> right.